Well, we've made it to the end of January. Technically, we have one more day tomorrow, but uh, we've made it through most of January, and that is actually an accomplishment. January is a tough month. It's always a tough month for a number of reasons uh, here where we are, uh, oftentimes because it's cold and it's dark, because we get through the holiday season and we have all those things to look forward to in December, Christmas, and New Year, and then we come to uh, January and it's kind of back to normal, but it's cold and it's dark, and it's a long month, and it's difficult for a lot of people in a lot of years. It's one that's discouraging. It's one that um, uh, people often feel isolated, and and uh, from a mental health perspective, it's a, a month that a lot of people struggle. Again, uh, weather probably plays into that and the things we're able to do. And uh, here, of course, um, there's been more frustrations because this year as we started the new year, I think a lot of us thought we'd be moving forward in terms of getting uh, back to life. At least we were hoping step by step back to life a little bit more normal. And instead we were moving backwards and that has caused a lot of frustration and a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment. Uh, I am sensing that the polarization that we have seen in our culture around uh, everything to do with the pandemic and everything to do with politics and all that kind of stuff has started to actually, the gap has started to widen a little bit. And I think it's because, and naturally speaking, we, we feel a little discouraged and we feel down and we're sick of things that are going on. And it's just so easy for us to get discouraged, uh, especially when we're not progressing the way that we wanted to progress. And that could be for you as an individual, things that you're missing out on, things that um, are being canceled or postponed once again. Uh, it could be your workplace. And, and, it, and really, I think, some of it has to do with not just our individual struggles, but of course, a lot of what we're dealing with uh, as a society and as a culture together. And so today, this is my goal. My goal is to bring you some encouragement. My goal is to tell you to keep going. My goal is to share with you why I think we can have confidence to be encouraged, even in circumstances that might be what we want them to be. And so if that's where you're at right now, if you're feeling a little down and a little discouraged, I hope that today you will hear from God as we speak through his scriptures, maybe already as we've sung together, uh, and that you might know that God is with us collectively together, God is working powerfully, and that we have great reason to be encouraged. I was reading recently uh, a famous book by Viktor Frankl called uh, Man's uh, Search for Meaning. Uh, it's a, a really become a very popular book. Viktor Frankl survived uh, the Holocaust. He was in concentration camps. He writes in his book um, about many of the atrocities that he saw, although he starts by saying, I'm not going to tell you everything. There are other books that tell you all of the, the, the horrific things that happened and that were endured by many people during the Holocaust. And so he says, I'm going to share some of my story, but I'm not going to tell you every little thing that happened to me. But the purpose for him, he's just, he was a trained psychologist, uh, and he wanted to use his observations of this very dark time in history to be able to, to speak into people's lives. And, and I almost am hesitant to, to bring up such an extreme example like the Holocaust, except that, that was his, his point, his purpose, is to say uh, that, that even after the Holocaust, uh, there is suffering and there is pain, and, and everybody on some level is going to experience that. And he wanted, I think, his observations uh, to be able to speak into the lives of people wherever they're at and whatever they're going through. And so in his book, he recounts uh, living in extremely harsh conditions, forced to do demanding work with almost no food, being exposed to a disease that just spread through those concentration camps and, and took people's lives, being beaten or tortured, watching his friends or fellow, fellow country people um, be killed, being, be taken away uh, to, their, uh, to, to where they were, they were murdered, um, and seeing the incredible suffering. And in it, 
he saw those who were continually filled with hope and those who weren't and wanted to write about what that looks like. A couple of his observations was that you couldn't, you couldn't have hope. Your hope couldn't be founded on things like avoiding suffering or having an easy life. It was obvious for him, but some of us uh, perhaps need to learn that lesson, that life is hard. And for him looking around, we can't just say, oh, we need, to, we need to get rid of our pain and suffering because they couldn't get rid of their pain and suffering. And so their, 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 their lives couldn't be founded on something that could be so easily taken away. He also said that your hope can't rest on positive thinking that this is just going to be over, that we're going to survive this and things are going to be better one day because his observation was that most of the people around him were not going to survive their conditions. It wasn't going to get better for them. They didn't know when or even if it was going to get better. And so just having the positive thinking and saying, well, well, one day things are going to get better. Well, one day we're going to get rescued. Well, one day it's all going to be fine just wasn't enough for him. We, we can't just have an easy life and we can't just expect, oh, if we just wait another week or a month or a year, then everything will be better. That just wasn't good enough either. It couldn't be that you were able to free yourself because he was not able to free himself. It had to be found in something deeper. And for Viktor Frankl, his thesis is that hope must be found on meaning, even in suffering. That what, what keeps the human spirit going, what, what allows us to be encouraged even when we're discouraged, when we're suffering, when we're hurt, when we're in pain, when, when we don't know if things are going to get better, that the secret is to, dream, to, to drive down deeper and to found our hope on meaning. So he says this, and this is powerful. After recounting so much of what he had been through and, and what he had, had observed, he says, the way in which a, a man, and he's talking about humans, accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives his ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. It may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish, or in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. In other words, he says, it is finding meaning that gives us endurance through suffering and knowing that life requires something out of us. It is easy when we're enduring something and when we're going through hardships and when we're hurting, it's easy for us to, to lose our dignity. It's easy for us to look for quick answers. It's, it's easy for us, to be honest, to treat each other poorly. And he says, but if you really want to have hope, you need to find a deeper meaning. You need to realize that life is calling something out of you. And that even in the midst of your suffering, the way that you endure, the way that you continue, the things that you do, the way that you treat our fellow human beings matters and makes a difference. And if you can find meaning in there, you can find hope no matter what you are going through. Here's my little summary of that. When you're in pain, what we want is pleasure, but what we need is purpose. When we're in pain, and by that I mean could be uh, physical, but it could be emotional, it could be mental. When we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're disappointed, when we're down, when we wish that life was different, what we often want is a, a quicker, easier answer. We want to feel good. We want our circumstances to change. We want life to go back to normal. Of course we do. Of course we do. We all do. I do. But what we really need is purpose. When we can't control pleasure, when we can't control our circumstances, when we can't control whether or not things are going well for us, 
What we need is purpose. What we need to know is that when we wake up, there's something for us. That life is calling something out of us, requires something out of us. And the way that we live and the way that we treat each other and the things that we do all matter. And I would dare to suggest that if you found yourself hopeless or completely discouraged or just so frustrated, then possibly one of the things that you've lost sight of is your daily purpose. What is really meaningful in your life for you to do? And I want you to know that today there is great meaning in your life and you can find great purpose, whatever it is that you do, whatever, the, whatever position God has put you in, that there is great purpose for your life. And in that purpose, you can find incredible hope and so today I want to talk about that. We have the last couple of weeks been in, uh, reading some passages from the book of Revelation, which is uh, oftentimes a difficult book for us to interpret. And we've, we've seen a little bit of that last week. There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of things that are very foreign to us. We don't have uh, a lot of literature that we normally read that is like Revelation. And so it's difficult for us to interpret. Uh, but last week, one of the things that I mentioned is that the way I read it, uh, my interpretation is that the vast majority of the book of Revelation, the symbols, the metaphors, are talking about things that were happening in the first century. It opens up with some letters to some church churches in the first century, and I believe that the vast majority of the book is talking about what was happening with the Roman Empire. Today we'll continue a little bit with that, but I also believe that as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, we do see this glorious picture of God's future, and for us to be able to grab onto it and find hope in it is so important, which we'll do today. The Revelation is a book of themes and contrasts, and uh, sometimes we read it, we try and figure out the chronology of what it's trying to say is happening or has happened, depending on how you read it. Uh, I think a better way to read it is actually to dive into the themes rather than try to figure out the chronology. Last week, we looked at the contrast between the beast, which I said is uh, the Roman Empire, represented by Caesar Nero, and the lamb, which is a representation of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who sacrificed himself for the world. Today is uh, a tale of two cities. We come to the end of the book of Revelation. I want to talk about two cities. Uh, one is uh, talked about as the, uh, Babylon, ancient city, but again is representative of the Roman Empire. And the other one is the New Jerusalem, which we're going to look at, um, talking about God's future with his people. So in Revelation, we see a picture of the city of Babylon, which again represents uh, the Roman Empire. And in chapters 17 and 18, we read about its fall. The Roman Empire, which was this powerful, rich, wealthy superpower, ruled the world of its time, where a lot of people looked at it and said, this is the salvation of the world, the Roman Empire. That's what they believed. That was their propaganda. We are uh, divinely, um, divinely inspired, divinely given the authority to rule the world. And yet, we see that there was uh, great injustices and oppression happening through the Roman Empire. And uh, in Revelation 7 and 18, we get a picture of um, how it falls. And this is what empires do in our world. Empires rise, often very arrogant, violent, oppressive. Sometimes people think there's never anything you can do about this empire. But empires fall, and we see that in history. They rise and they fall, just like the Roman Empire rose and it fell. Despite its arrogance, greed, and dominance, it would not last out. And this is part of the hope we find in Revelation, is that evil does not win out. 
So Revelation chapter 18, verse 11 to 13, I'll read to you a little bit about uh, why people thought that this empire was attractive, but also its downfall. So listen to this. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys her cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots. It's a long list because you're supposed to go, wow, they had it all. They bought everything off of everybody. They were making the merchants rich. They were wealthy and luxurious. They had it all. And slaves, that is human souls. And you go, whoa, that took a turn. Human souls, slaves. They, they bought everybody's stuff. They were wealthy. They had it all. They were a culture of, of luxury and of you can get whatever you want and of abundance and abundance and abundance. And everybody, oh, this is great because they'll buy our stuff. They'll buy our stuff. What will they buy? Everything is such a long list. They're so wealthy. But even they would buy slaves, human souls. What? What was the cost of this wealth? But even at the cost of the lives, the souls of people? And it says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all its wealth has been laid waste. And this is part of this section uh, where Babylon, that looks so wealthy and so powerful and so wonderful, and everybody gets rich, all of a sudden we see is, is just teeming with injustice, and it's fallen. And uh, by the way, a little offshoot, but in a society that we live, on, live in that is very materialistic and consumeristic and driven by uh, money and how much more money can we have and how much more stuff that we can have, I think we ought to stop and pause and just be reminded that every wealthy empire rises, yeah, but falls, and that there must be something better than that. To think about the cost of the wealth for some at the expense of others. Big, uh, again, theme of revelation of, yes, it looks powerful and wealthy, but also destructive for some, even souls being bought and sold. It's the promise of, of luxury, but at, at a great cost. And by the way, it was never really satisfactory. It was a mirage. It was superficial. Oh, we're going to get everything that we want. It's good for business. We have all of our desires. And yet we see wasn't enough. All the delicacies gone, lost, not to be found again. Business shut down. It just is not strong enough. The description of this city, again, the city of Babylon, which represents the Roman Empire, often in the book of Revelation, is that she is a prostitute. Think about that for a second. And in some translations, by the way, much of a harsher word than prostitute but think of what a prostitute is. A prostitute is paid for pleasure. There is really no expectation for faithfulness, loyalty, love, or a real relationship. It is a transaction. And it might look very tempting, but always leaves you lacking what you, what you really need, what you really desire deep down. It will not last. It will never last. And that is the contrast. Babylon, the Roman Empire, is a prostitute. Strong words. Why would, why would he use that kind of language? You don't try to marry the prostitute. 
Then we come to Revelation 21 and we get the contrast. This is uh, the, the, another city, the new Jerusalem, and there's going to be some uh, fantastic metaphors here that we can learn from um, that are supposed to contrast this prostitute that looks like it'll give you everything that you want but can never really satisfy, that rises in arrogance and violence but will ultimately fall. Now we read about uh, the, the city of, of God. And there's so much here for us. It says, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see the contrast. Here is the bride for her husband, for God and his people. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. This is new Jerusalem. It is the bride which represents the people of God as he is making all things new. Let's take a look at some of the symbolism that comes. We're going to skip a few verses down uh, to verse nine and where we saw the materialism, the consumerism, the oppression, the violence, the arrogance of uh, Rome, of the city of Babylon, metaphorically. We now see the flip side of that and the contrast that is meant to give encouragement to those who are living in Rome but are longing for something better. Verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took, me into the, he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Now remember, John is giving to us a written account of a vision that he has, taken by the spirit and shown these spiritual realities that represent what's going on in the world. And he is using imagery that was known to the ancient people, and specifically to those who knew the Hebrew scriptures, which is now the Christian Old Testament, very well. And so there's a lot of imagery that comes to us that alludes to things that we find in the Old Testament and help us to interpret what is it that we're supposed to get from these, these metaphors that are very hard for us to understand. The high mountain, high mountains, very big in the Old Testament, Places like Ezekiel chapter 40, 20 tell us that what this is about is where heaven meets earth. This is a very ancient way of thinking is that if we're going to meet with the gods, well, they're up there somewhere. We should try and get up there. We should try and get closer. And sometimes in the Old Testament, this is really condemned as a bad thing. Other times we see people like Moses, a great leader for the Israelite people, who actually goes up a mountain and meets with God to come and then mediate God's voice to his people. And so we get a bit of, uh, this isn't something you should do, but also something that is used. I think God uses the, the way that the people were thinking in that uh, culture um, and to reveal himself to them. And so we have, again, places like the prophet Ezekiel, who talks about this high mountain is where, where we meet with God. Uh, a negative place, and I think is being uh, turned around in this chapter, we read in Genesis chapter 9. So you might have heard of the Tower of Babel. So the people got together and they said, we're going to build a tower and this tower, we're going to build it as high as we can so that we can go up to the gods. And what they're describing there is from the ancient world called a ziggurat. A ziggurat is a temple to the gods. Babylon had ziggurats. 
And the idea is we need to build our way up to heaven so that we can walk our way up the staircase and experience the presence of the gods. And in Genesis chapter 9, we see that that is condemned and is broken down and the people are spread out because they're prideful, thinking, I can build my way up to God. We learn all the way through Scripture how that fails us. Ah, I must build my way to God. Ah, we must come together and do all that we can do to get God to notice us. And if we build this big tower, if we get high enough, if we go up to the mountain, then perhaps we will find God. We will get to Him. But listen to verse 10 again. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This is not us making our way to God. This is God making his way down to us. It is God coming to us. It is heaven descending on earth. It is, when I say heaven, I don't mean this place where your soul drifts off magically somewhere. I mean the, the rule and the reign of God coming to this world resting on this world, the new Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is heaven coming to earth. That's what this is talking about. We prayed this prayer this morning, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We want here, earth, to operate the way that heaven does, where God gets his way, where God sets all things right, where God leads us. Verse 11 says, It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We have, maybe you noticed 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. 12 is a number of completeness of uh, a whole. We have everything that we need. We hear the allusion specifically to two groups of people. One, uh, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. And so we have uh, the history from which uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ comes through the Israelite people, the covenant people of God. We think of the promises that were made to Israel, that God would be with them, that he would be their God, and they would be his people. We read that a little bit earlier in this same uh, little section of, of scripture that God promising to be with his people and to make them his own, to call them out of the world and to, to, to be together in his presence. And so we have uh, the gates representing the tribes of Israel, all of Israel, but then also we have on the foundations the names of the apostles. And so we see the history of God working through Israel, uh, bringing the Messiah, the Christ, who is now the savior of uh, the, of the whole world. We're not talking just about one nation. And this was always the promise back going to Abram, uh, that, that he would be a blessing, that he would have this great family and that they would be a blessing to the entire world. And we see this fulfillment in Jesus who takes this movement that, that uh, had worked through this nation and what it always meant to be to work out it into all the world. And so we have uh, the, the foundational stones of the apostles. And so we have the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the law, the prophets, all that led up to the fulfillment of the promises of God into Jesus. And now the apostles, the one who followed Jesus, who started the early church, who went out and made this a worldwide mo uh, movement, proclaiming the good news to everybody. And so the New Jerusalem, founded on the, 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 the promises and the covenants of God, is about God's presence with his people. What he had always promised, what he was always working for, what the Messiah came to bring about as the church emerges as a universal movement that continues today and through whom God is working through to bring about his glorious future. It's beautiful. 
Verse 15, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. Now here we have these measurements, which uh, again, we're not supposed to take literally, like, oh, it's exactly this high and this far and, and this wide. Um, some people have done that and go, well, how many people are going to fit in there and all this kind of stuff? Not the purpose. The purpose is this is a cube. And a cube is supposed to make us think of the Holy of Holies in the temple. You can read about that in 1 Kings 6.20. The Holy of Holies in the temple was a cube, all the measurements the same. And in the temple, it was where the presence of God, the concentrated presence of God dwelt. The glory of God dwelt. And it was so holy, most people couldn't go anywhere near it. High priest once in a while, like once a year, would go in uh, to atone for the people. Uh, but it was, that is where God is in the Holy of Holies. And so there was sort of concentric layers of the temple that certain people could get to in their worship. And you can't get a little bit too close. And when Jesus was crucified, uh, the curtain that separated from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. It represents the fact that God's presence is unleashed in a brand new way into the entire world. And in the new Jerusalem, this is the point. The presence of God is, is teeming all the way through creation. It's unleashed everywhere. This is what happened when Jesus was victorious over sin and in death, a great fulfillment. And so now the new Jerusalem, which is heaven coming to earth, is the presence of God permeating every aspect of creation, renewing and restoring all things. And what had been thought by the people to be this, this area in the temple, we go to the temple, that's where God's presence is. That's where we worship. Now it's this, now we're working its way out back into the world, back into creation, where we can find God's presence everywhere and in everything. All over the place, God's presence is, is working. Verse 18 says, The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall in the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth... To they just put these lists in to annoy preachers. The tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Okay, you go... Again, partially, okay, there's a lot of very valuable stones here. They're precious. And they're glowing. They're glorious. They're beautiful. The first nine we would notice were worn on the breastplate of the high priest. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 to 20. That is the priest who mediates the presence of God would wear all of these kind of jewels on them. Uh, in Ezekiel 28 reminds us that these precious stones are in God's paradise is depicted in the Garden of Eden. So now we're going back to the paradise of God's garden where uh, he put Adam and Eve. You maybe remember that story. And they were to, to work the land. They were to cultivate it. They were to, to be uh, in God's presence in creation and to do everything good with what they had around us. And so now we're getting allusion back to that, back to the priests who wore these, uh, the, these uh, precious, precious stones, but also back to the fact that in God's paradise, 
that was ruined back in Eden when people walked away from God in their pride is now being restored. And we want to get a picture again of the preciousness of which God is restoring. The New Jerusalem is the best possible version of human culture and community. It is what was always intended. We start with a garden and then we cultivate it. We cultivate, we get that word, our, our word for culture from it. We bring our culture to it. We make it good. We take these resources and, and we bring goodness to it as we work. And that is what ultimately a city should be. Instead of exploiting creation, instead of being selfish with it, instead of dominating it, we are, we are called in a godly way to cultivate it and to bring all the, the goodness that is there together. And that's what the New Jerusalem is about. We start with a garden, as Tim Keller often says, and we end in a city. The New Jerusalem is the best possible version of human culture and community. It's what God always intended. It's his paradise restored and redeemed. Verse 21, the 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Some beautiful, wonderful imagery here. You see the nations are coming to this, this new creation, this new city. The nations that had been exploited in Babylon or in Rome, that had been you know, part of this transactional relationship that could never continue and was never satisfying and that cost the lives of vulnerable people. Well, now it's the nations. You come, this is a universal moment, doesn't movement. Wherever you come from, whatever your nationality, whatever your background, invited to come and to be part of what God is doing to renew his creation. You can be part of this new city. The gates are never shut. No one's forced in, but all can come and enter and bring the best of who they are. But the evil is kept out, that this is a place where all all that, that has, has ruined God's creation is now free of. God is making all things new. Such a beautiful picture, and there's so much, there's so much there for us. What does all this mean for us? What do we take from this? What do we take in our circumstances? Again, very different from the people of the first century. Uh, we don't have the exact struggles and suffering that they have. But we, as they did, continue to live in, in a world that has fallen, a world that struggles, a world that is sinful, a world that has suffering and pain, a world in which uh, we, we see a picture of a city like this, of a, a creation renewed, and, and we long for it. We long for things to be made right. We long for the suffering uh, to be dealt with. We long for injustice to be dealt with. We, we long to be with God in this powerful way. What does it mean? I think it means that as God makes all things new and is restoring creation, Christianity is not about believing a list of things and waiting until we die to go to heaven, but it's about partnering with what God is doing to restore all things. We're called to follow Jesus, and in that, to be outposts of hope, pointing to the new creation, pointing to the the restoration of all things, pointing to what the victory of Jesus already has assured. What does it mean for us as a church? Who are we supposed to be as a church? An outpost of hope, 
A sign pointing towards the victory of God. A sign pointing its way into the glorious future that God has promised us. Rooted in the past, rooted in the promises and the covenants of God. Rooted in in the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. Rooted in the Spirit working in our lives now. And by the way, if if you just look around, you see it's easy to see so much negativity in the world. It's easy to see the struggle. It's easy to see the pain and the suffering. And it's there and we don't diminish it. We need to grieve it and to mourn it. But if you will look, you will also find signs of the kingdom that is already broken in and continues to break into our world. Signs that God is at work. Signs that God is moving us into his glorious future and he is calling us and he's calling our lives to be part of it. To move with him as we move towards this glorious future. Here's how N.T. Wright puts it. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus died, but then was resurrected, came back to life, which is, is this monumental picture of how God takes everything that looks like uh, it's ruined and destroyed and then renews it. And what happened to Jesus in his resurrection happens for all of us. It's a call for all of us as we have faith in Jesus that we will be resurrected. And not just us as individuals, but this whole world is being put back together. So N.T. Wright puts it this way, talking about the resurrection. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Everything that you do, even when you're suffering and hurting for the kingdom matters because it will last into God's glorious future. Isn't that spectacular? There is great meaning in your life. You have a great purpose, whatever you are doing, whatever you've been called to. When we're in pain, what we want is pleasure, but what we need is purpose. And God has given us so much purpose to be part of his kingdom as he builds it, as he renews it, as he restores it. As I said at the beginning, I've noticed recently there's a widening gap for many. I get it. And I totally get it. Frustrations. It's been a frustrating time. Arguments with people who see things differently than you. I understand that too, because all of us, we want things to get better. We, we may think that we see a way for things to get better. And when people disagree with us, that can be hard to understand. It can drive something inside of us that might turn us uh, negative, that might, that might turn us against each other. And I think our call is to rise above that as a church and to unite around a greater purpose and to find meaning in the things that God is calling us to do. How can you find your purpose? say, well, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? Broadly speaking, we might say, well, the kingdom of God is our purpose. You say, well, that's great. But what on earth does that mean? Where do I find the kingdom of God? Look for where God is at work in your life. I can't tell you what it is. But I would suggest that every day you look for God in your day. Where is God doing something? Where do I see little sparks of his kingdom, of his forgiveness, of his peace, of his joy, of his grace? Where do I see opportunities for those things to be worked out in my life and then join him there? It's going to look different for all of us. I can't tell you specifically what your purpose is, but I know that it's all around you. It's not hidden from you. It's right there. Let me uh, give you some suggestions. But again, I can't tell you where you're going to find purpose specifically. Students, 
You're trying to earn a degree under very unusual circumstances. You've lost out on experiences that you probably wish you would have in order to gain knowledge and skill to contribute to the world. I hope. Keep on. It matters. What you do matters. What you're training for matters. You can contribute to this world for the kingdom of God, and it matters. And I know it's hard, and I know this is probably not what you wanted for your university experience. Keep on. It matters. Frontline workers, can't say enough for you guys. You're caring for vulnerable people. You're providing things that we all need, whether that's in a hospital or a grocery store or utilities. And we couldn't do this without you. It matters. Keep on for the kingdom. Parents, you are spending way more time with your kids than you probably ever imagined. And sometimes that's awfully stressful and you need a break and maybe you've been working from home and you've gone back and forth between having your kids with you in your house and kids at school and you're trying to catch up with things and you probably have a picture of what you wish school was like for them right now and it might not match up. It probably doesn't match up with what they're experiencing. Who you are raising, Andy Stanley says, might be the most important thing you do in your life. More important than anything you do is probably who you are raising. Parents, keep on. It matters. The values that you're instilling, the things that you're teaching, the things that you're modeling, the way that you're caring and loving for your children matters. It makes a difference. You're expanding the kingdom of God to them when you love them and care for them and shepherd them. Encourager, prayers, teachers, volunteers. I can't list everybody. What you do matters. What is done for the kingdom of God lasts into his future. When you get discouraged, when you get frustrated, when you get tempted to turn to the negative, when you think it's not, I'm not making a difference in anybody's lives and I'm just working so hard and I feel burned out, you have a purpose. God is restoring all things and he's saying you can be part of it to use your circumstances and your gifting and who you are in ways that you might think are small or insignificant. They are not. And we are called to be outposts of the hope of God, living on purpose. Keep serving people, keep loving people, keep encouraging one another. None of this will pass away. All of it survives into God's glorious future. And I believe with all my heart that God has put us here, Westside Church, to herald his kingdom to Hamilton, Ancaster, and Dundas. I believe that not only as individuals we have purpose, but Westside Church has a purpose. We're not here by accident. We're not simply surviving through a pandemic. What we do collectively, what we do together for the kingdom lasts into the future. And I believe it is very on purpose that God has given us meaning to be an outpost of hope for Ancaster, for Dundas, for Hamilton. To be here, to let them know that God's presence is with his people. And even if you don't feel it right now, and even if you see all the negativity and all the hardship that God is calling us forth from his glorious future to live that in the now and the way that we treat each other and the dignity with which we live and with which we give to each other, the way we treat our fellow human beings makes all the difference. This is Jesus calling us to be part of the kingdom where our number one priority is to love God with everything that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It matters more as much, if not more than ever when the world is struggling. A world that needs to see that there is meaning and that there is purpose and that we believe it and that we are willing to partner with God on it. You want to know, uh, man, it's been a tough season. 
was talking to church leaders this week, and uh, church leaders are discouraged, just like everybody else, because, uh, because, because we can't gather the way that we wanted to, because we can't do some of the, the things in groups that we wanted to, because uh, our people are struggling, the people that we love, the people that we want to see doing well. So I thought maybe I'll just uh, read you a couple of things that we've done as a church over the last two years that have had real meaning. And there's a whole bunch that uh, I can't list. There's all kinds of stuff, but I just want to remind you because this is, this is us. This isn't like a program or, I don't know, whatever. This is, this is people, you, who have decided to be on mission for the kingdom of God in Hamilton, Ancaster, and Dundas. Some from out of town watching us online and being part of what we're doing here. And I believe God is working in powerful ways and will continue to. And I want to encourage you that in your personal life as well as for us as a church. We've had uh, our children uh, a year, year and a half ago uh, do some artwork and, and sent, it, uh, sent it to a prison to Brighton, tough place to be all the time tough place to be in a pandemic, prisoners, and just to line the walls with things that are bright and cheery and encouraging from our kids. Westside Kids did that. We've donated over a ton of food to Hamilton Food Share to resource local food banks. Literally over a ton of food, 2,000, more than 2,000 pounds. We've made donations to women's shelters when in a time where people who are suffering from domestic abuse have found it an even more challenging and dangerous time. We've donated more than $21,000 to Food for Kids. Do you know how many meals, do you know how many weekends of meals for kids that is? Thousands. Some of you have led people to Jesus during this time. I've heard the stories. Some of you have hosted or invited friends to Christmas outreaches in person or online. Some of you have driven friends to make sure that they can come to church and, and worship in person. Some of us have learned how to record, edit, and live stream a service. Thank you to our tech team. Nobody ever really sees you guys, but you have been working every step of the way to make sure the message of hope get out to people when they can't be here in person, and we love you and we appreciate you. We've delivered dozens of family uh, Christmas boxes at Christmas time to help people celebrate and experience hope, delivered meals to encourage family. Some of you during this fall when we opened up in person volunteered in full PPE to care for our, and teach our children, to welcome people at the door, to bring people in. Our band has done music from their homes, their living rooms, on stage, wherever they can, however they can, to continue to point us in worship to Jesus. We've raised over $40,000 for our Committed to Community Fund, which is our pledge to not stop but to continue on the mission that God has for us to reach more and more people and families in Ancaster and Dundas and Hamilton. And many of you have stepped up generously to make sure that that will happen. And this weekend, today, many of you brought in socks or toques or gloves because it's cold outside and there are people who are living on the streets or, or just about there. And so we are going to distribute this week. If you didn't bring it today in person, you can bring it tomorrow night between 6.30 and 8.30 the side door, and we are going to make sure that we can just be a, a small help to people who are really struggling. All these things and all the things that I can't mention and, and lists and lists and lists of stuff that I'll never know about and maybe nobody in your life will know about, they all matter. They're outposts of hope. And we continue to declare hope. I can't make your pain go away. I can't make the circumstances change. I can't make life easier. But here's the good news. Even when we're in pain, what we might want is pleasure, but what we need is purpose. And God has given us great purpose in his kingdom, assured by Jesus, powered by his Holy Spirit, 
and we are invited to participate. So, Heavenly Father, when we pray that your kingdom would come, today I pray that that prayer would have uh, a little more meaning to us, that you'd open our eyes to the ways that you're working in our lives, in our community, in our church. I pray that you would battle against the, the, the spirits of discouragement that many of us are feeling, frustration. God, in the moments where we're tempted to give in to negativity, would you remind us of the hope we have in the new Jerusalem? Yes, in its future, but also in its presence, manifestations. God, would your kingdom come in our families, in marriages, in friendships, in classes, in workplaces, and here in Hamilton and Ancaster and Dundas. It is our privilege to be part of it. God, encourage us as we participate with the purpose you've given us in our lives, in Jesus' name.